Welcome to another Abiding Thought. Today I want to kind of flesh out something that's introduced in Genesis 3.15 where God pronounces to the serpent this conflict that will be between his seed and the seed of the woman. What we've called in some of our Bible studies the two-seed conflict, and that is going to be with us until the Lord takes us home. And essentially the two seeds, uh, as we would see it uh, throughout the pages of Scripture, is those who belong to or those who are brought to faith through the person and work of Christ and therefore are identified as being in conjunction, in fellowship with, uh, at one with the seed of the woman who is the ultimate seed of the woman, is Christ. So therefore, everyone who is united to him by faith are part of the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent are all of those who remain in their unregenerate state. That is the conflict. It's not nation against nation. It's individuals. We see it as early as Genesis 4, where we have the birth of Cain and Abel. Um, it, some have suggested that when they gave birth, Adam and Eve gave birth to uh, Cain because he was the firstborn, they assumed that he was the seed of the woman and their rejoicing is thinking that she had given birth to the promised seed. In fact, what she her, her first child was really seed of the, the serpent. And then um, she gives birth to Abel, who is the seed of the woman. And what we see in that conflict is Cain kills Abel. In less dramatic ways, but certainly throughout uh, redemptive history, that conflict remains. So that's the backdrop, this, con this concept of conflict between those who belong to the Messiah and those who don't. Now, to give it uh, a little more context, uh, we see in the history of the kings of Israel, and I want to focus on King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was known for a number of things. Um, and the one thing, that the first thing, which is what our point of reference is going to be, but ultimately we know that he asked for 15 more years and the Lord gave him 15 more years. And then he saw why he should have, you know, well, his 15 extended years weren't good. But what does start uh, his kingship is that he inherits the kingdom from his father Ahaz. And Ahaz was one who was genuinely a representative of the seed of the serpent. Even though the kingship of Israel was supposed to, was uh, provided the backdrop and was supposed to reflect the coming seed of the woman, who is the ultimate king of God's people. And so therefore they were supposed to follow in a pattern that was established by the law of God, anticipating the coming of the great king. Kings were good or they were not, but the kingship itself was the, the it, it set the pattern for the coming Messiah. Ahaz was a wicked king. Uh, early on, he starts by making idols to Baal and so forth. And by the time he comes to the end of his life. He has pretty much terminated worship in the temple as it was supposed to be. And his son, Hezekiah, when he ascends to the throne, the, one of the first things that he does is restores worship in the temple. 
And so from uh, in chapter 29 uh, of Second Chronicles, Hezekiah begins his reign. And like I said, one of the first things that he does is he, he cleanses the temple and then restores temple worship. And then he goes on to remove the high place or the, article, uh, the altars where false gods were set up and so forth. And his is one of the significant reformations of the Old Testament. Josiah would be another one. In any event, by the time we get to chap chapter 32, and this is almost, we don't know how many years have passed, but a number of years have passed. And Hezekiah has started this far-reaching um, this far-reaching reformation, torn down uh, altars to false gods, etc. And now the people are being reintroduced. And we have to hold in mind here that when there has been systematic shift, a systematic shift from the sound to the unsound, then at some point there will be a generation that is raised up thinking that the unsound is sound because that's all they know. And so therefore to bring a shift to go from the unsound to the sound, it's alien to those who were brought up in thinking that that which is unhealthy is healthy. This really stands out, especially in religious circles. Because that which we come to faith in or that which shapes us in, our, in the early days of our faith, it becomes, it, that, that establishes the boundaries for what we think is orthodox, what we think is healthy, what we think is sound. And I say this because what Hezekiah did, we can look at it on this end of redemptive history and we mark it as being heroic. But those who were who experienced it. Maybe there were some, some of the older guard who understood the law of God and they understood the departures that had taken place under Ahaz, but for whatever reason, the unhealthy and the unsound had become the standard of the day. So from chapter 29 all the way through chapter 31, we see uh, the work of the Reformation or the reforming work of Hezekiah. By the time we get to chapter 32, the old system of corruption has already been removed and a return to the law as established in the Mosaic law and worship as according to the Mosaic law had been reinstituted. And here comes the voice of dissent. And it's interesting how that always happens. So chapter 32 opens with, in verse 31, in, in verse 1, <clears throat> with, an, 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 in ordinary times, this would be a voice of clear and open dissent against the people of, of God. Because the, the, the voice comes from Sennacherib. Sennacherib is the king of Assyria, who's a pagan. And so in verse 1, looking at the aftermath of the reforming work of Hezekiah, here's what we read. After these things, these things refers to the work of reformation under Hezekiah. After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah 
and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over for himself. Now let's look at the scenario here. There's already been a religious shift from the unsound to the sound. Lo and behold, they are invaded by an enemy. The city of Jerusalem is invaded by an enemy. You can imagine that there would be some naysayers who would assume that the only reason this has happened is because the old altars have been taken away. And by old altars, they would be referring to the false, uh, the altars to the false gods that had been in place and had become the norm under Ahaz. So now all of a sudden we see Sennacherib has come in and it's not just enough for him to overtake the city. He wants to win the people over to himself. And the tactics that he uses is basically threefold. And we see it first off in verse 11. In verse 11 of the same chapter, uh, chapter 32 in uh, Second Corinthians or Second Chronicles, in verse 11 it says, he, these are the words of, of uh, Sennacherib. Is not Hezekiah misleading you that he may um, give you over to die by famine uh, and by the thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? So the first thing that he wants to do is discredit Hezekiah. And you can imagine how if people are not grounded in the truth of God's word, how they might try to make the connection because before he started this religious reformation, things were going well. I think of the children of Israel when they were in the midst of the wilderness and all of a sudden they there was no bread and they said, oh, it was better for us to eat leeks and onions and garlic while we were in Egypt, which means in bondage. So somehow... When you get hungry, bondage looks better than freedom, that freedom that has been granted to you by a God who has opened up a Red Sea for you, has brought water out of a rock, but somehow those days look so much better. And that's what, what Hezekiah, uh, that's what Sennacherib is doing here, um, trying to make, trying to, to cast dispersions on the leadership of Hezekiah that he's telling you God is going to deliver you, and you can imagine the people thinking, "Yeah, because it was if if uh, when we had the altars up, we never had a problem with Assyria." So therefore, cast dispersions on the intent of Hezekiah. Here's the second thing that he does: not only does he attempt to discredit Hezekiah, but we see in the very next verse, in verse twelve, he also tries to make them long for the altars that have been removed. In verse uh, 12, uh, he says, he uh, has not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem before one altar you shall worship and on it you shall burn your sacrifices. In other words, has it, uh, maybe you can make a connection between this one altar that you are now forced to worship in. In other words, now sound doctrine 
uh, now that you have this doctrine, what good is this doctrine if, if uh, I'm here banging at your door? Um, because So don't trust Hezekiah because he doesn't have your best interests. And don't listen to him uh, because he's the one who's taken away all of your many altars, telling you that all you needed was one altar. And you see, it hasn't stopped anyone. In fact, that's the third thing that he does. He, the third thing that he does, having discredited Hezekiah, having, having caused them to, or, or attempting to, to make them uh, celebrate the false altars that have been removed, he then goes on to ridicule and blaspheme God. In verses 13 through 15, he says, Do you not know that I and my fathers, or what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of, our, of other lands, where the gods of the nations and those lands uh, at um, and and uh, the nations of those lands at all were all at all able to deliver their lands out of my hands? Who among all the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand? That your God should be able to deliver you from my hand. Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion, and do not believe him. For no god of any nation or any kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? He has discredited, he's attempted to discredit God's appointed leader in Hezekiah. He's attempted to discredit the singular altar by which acceptable worship is offered to that one God. And now he just straight up says, God is not able to deliver. That's the seed of the serpent trying to deceive the seed of the woman. It follows a similar pattern that we see throughout redemptive history. We see it with um, in the first temptation. That's certainly uh, many of the tactics or some of the tactics used by Satan in, in trying to tempt or in tempting Adam and Eve. When he tells Eve, has God really said? Attempting to dis somehow disparage the character of God and the word of God and the sufficiency of what God has given. Here's what I'm saying, brothers and sisters. Here's our abiding thought. There are many things that we inherit, even in our religious settings, that are not, that, that obscure the truth of what God has given us in his word. Every church, every generation of the church has to, Guard against those oppositions, those things secondary. Sometimes it's not as, as blatant as in the case of Ahaz, just bringing false things into the, the worship of God. But I think that in a contemporary sense, there are any number of activities, any number of things that exalts itself against the worship of the true God, the true, the true worship of the true God. And it's at any given point in our church history or in the history of the, the church in the West especially 
that practices secondary things obscure the primary message of the gospel and we become so enamored by, we become so defined by these secondary things that to remove them is perceived as a threat to our spiritual well-being. And then the Lord raises up teachers and he raises up, uh, brings us movements where we, where the, the false things are removed from us. And then we are faced with God and what he has revealed to us in his grace. And he calls us to worship him through these things and to understand him through these things other than, uh, rather than through the things that have obscured our understanding of his grace towards us. And we always miss those things. Isn't that the case? Aren't we like the children of Israel missing those days, those activities, those things, thinking that's what gave us strength? And then there's always going to be someone coming along saying, you were better off when. But then notice God has the final word. In verse uh, 20 and 21, or I'll read... Um, I'll read verse, yeah, verse uh, 20 and 21. It says, Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this, and they cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down, struck him down there with the sword. The point here is what God has provided for the worshiping of his people to nurture them in their faith of him. Although it can be obscured by the means and hands of men, God is faithful to what he has promised. And sometimes he purges us because it was a painful process that Hezekiah went through in bringing about reformation. Oftentimes we think it's a matter of Hezekiah saying, hey, here's what the word of God says, or Josiah, here's what the God word of God says, and so now let's put it back on track. But no, lives were lost. And people railed against it. In fact, uh, Josiah put many of the false priests to death. So it comes at great cost. And it doesn't always feel right. And it doesn't always seem right. But God is faithful in bringing those along who bring us to really understand what he's revealed in the first place. And it's going to seem to go against the grain. And our fallen nature and our, our, our desire to be what we were will be used as fodder by the seed of the serpent to cause us to diminish the value of what God has originally revealed. And then we would think that our comfort is somehow the security that we have in what God has promised. We will think that it's threatened because we see physical things that challenge us. But what God has promised is sufficient. And ultimately, here's what we know. As Jesus says in Matthew 16, flesh and blood did not reveal to this to you, Peter, when he confessed you are the Christ of the, the son of the living God. But then Jesus says this, upon this rock, I will build my church 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The rock that he builds upon is the confession that Peter makes, that you are the Christ, promised and prophesied, progressively unfolded through the pages of Old Testament scripture. You are the physical manifestation of that promise. And trusting in that promise, in spite of what will be lost, in spite of the appearance of things, trust in that promise is our confidence because upon that promise, Christ will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Brothers and sisters, let's trust God in what God has promised in his son so that we are not overtaken by things that obscure the grandeur of God's grace and we're not shaken when we see external things seeming to sometimes threaten our comfort zones. But what God has promised, Christ has delivered. And what Christ has delivered is our security. Amen.